All right. Well, he's on the line now, so we'll bring him in. Uh, Rick's new book just came out. is called Catch-22, My Battles in Hockey and Life. And uh, we're happy to, to bring Rick on now. Thanks a lot for doing this, Rick. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Uh, my, my pleasure getting on with you guys this afternoon. Well, uh, we look forward to this conversation. Uh, the book is, uh, I think, very truthful, very emotional. I'm, I'm interested in uh, the process that you went through in terms of putting it together. Well, it was, uh, I mean, I've been asked many times, you know, why don't you write a book and so on? And I said, no, I'm not ready yet. I just, that was, you know, my mind was thinking, okay, I'm not ready to do this. And then I, last fall, I, I, uh, was with Scotty and we talked about it and then we had a meeting with random uh, publishing house and laid it out what we wanted to do. And they were like, yeah, let's do it. And so it took us from October till late April, early May to get everything completely finished. When uh, you went into this process, uh, you've decided to cover, I mean, your whole life. I mean, it's right there in, in the title. How did you go about uh, kind of putting those different sections of your life in, into a, a kind of, as we see in the book, uh, a, strain, a streamlined story that, that starts from, you know, your younger days in Ottawa and in PEI through to, uh, you know, the end of your NHL career and, and your ultimate, your, your coaching career and, and now where you're at in life. How was, how was that in terms of, of a process for you to revisit a lot of stuff? And, and as you write in the book, some of it um, difficult times for you. Well, it, it really wasn't that difficult because things are good now and, and I was able to kind of put everything in the past. And, you know, I, I don't worry that much about what could have been, should have been, or would have been. I, you know, I, I'm a guy that kind of looks at everything day to day and, like, I wake up, I feel great. Well, I don't feel great. My shoulders hurt, my neck hurts. But, but other than that, uh, I'm doing good. So, you know, I, it wasn't that difficult. And, uh, you know, I mean, we obviously wanted to cover everything and, uh, you know, I wasn't going to leave anything out. Uh, that was a big thing of writing a book. And the only guy I would have written it with was Scotty. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was long and, and sometimes, uh, he had to talk to my wife quite a bit and my older sister, because, uh, there was a lot of dates I couldn't remember and, uh, they filled in the blanks in, in that case. So, uh, yeah, no, it, but it was uh, it was long, but you know, Scotty probably did more of the work because he had to put it on paper and switch things around. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he did a lot more work than I did. You reference uh, the Hall of Fame writer Scott Morrison, who uh, co-authored the book with you, Rick. Uh, Rick Vive joining us on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Uh, Rick, we were just mentioning as you came on, uh, you were drafted fifth overall in 1979 by the Canucks, but only ended up playing 47 games before they moved you to Toronto. I'm just wondering if you can go back and, and share what that was like, uh, you know, if why you thought the reason for the trade and for the team, I don't want to say giving up on you so early, but uh, as I mentioned, it's it's rare that you see a top draft pick move that quickly in their career these days. No, absolutely. And uh you know, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think they gave up on me a little too quick, but uh, that was Harry Harry Neal's decision. He was kind of uh, looking after things, uh, 
our GM was was kind of sick and 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 not able to do a lot, so it, was, it all kind of fell on Harry. But you know what? I, I don't blame Harry. It was uh, a trade that they made that they thought they needed, and and I think they did need a guy like Tiger Williams uh, at that point because they had already traded Jack McElhardy, Donnie Lever, some of our older uh, leaders, and uh, and some of our toughness. So. You know, and then they ended up going to the Stanley Cup final what two years later. So you know, for them, short term is what they needed. But you know what? It, it was it is what it is. Uh, I think Harry didn't think I was in good enough shape, and claims he beat me in the run at training camp, which was <laughs> far from true. <laughs> and uh, Harry couldn't have beat me if he was on a bike. But uh, but anyway. Uh, you know what? It, it, it is what it is, and you know I I'm just happy I got to Toronto, and they said you're going to get a, a great opportunity to play a lot here and play with the best players, and and they followed through on it, and I took advantage of it, and I worked extremely hard to to make sure that you know if I was going to get traded, it wasn't going to be for a while. You mentioned the trade to Toronto. You went on to have three 50-goal seasons in 1982, 83, and 84. And when you look around at, you know, the players that were at the top of the league that time, you know, you were in and amongst the the Wayne Gretzky's, Yari Curry, Mike Bossies. I mean, these, these were, you know, Hall of Fame players that, you know, were, were right there. And I'm just sort of wondering what really struck me about the book is on paper, those would seem to have been, you know, your best years of your career. But with a struggling Leafs team under, you know, notoriously cheap owner Harold Ballard, it didn't sound like it was the best time of your career. And I was just wondering if you could sort of expand on that and, and give give us sort of some of the details of why it wasn't as enjoyable a time as you would have liked. Well, I mean, the big thing is, yes, I mean, there were some good moments. Uh, I had some great teammates. In my opinion, you know, a lot of young guys uh, – Jim Benning, the general manager of your Canucks out there, and Gary Nyland, and, uh, you know, several other players were put into positions where they probably should have been back in junior getting better as players getting stronger and more mature. And, uh, you know, because of that, we suffered a little bit through a few of those years. And, you know, it was Harold. Harold didn't want to pay. We were probably underpaid for what guys that did what we did on other teams were making, and he wouldn't pay for a good general manager that could make a smart move at the deadline to put us over the top. And there was a lot of mistakes made, and then, you know, it's, it was kind of frustrating. Uh, and, you know, let's face it, when you're in the National Hockey League, you're playing to win a Stanley Cup, and that's the ultimate goal. And we never got a chance to get close to that. So that, you know, that's very disappointing. I mean, I think we went to the second round twice and uh, lost in the first round three times, I believe, while I was there. And uh, Yeah, it was frustrating. It was, uh, I mean, we, you always want to win that final game in Hoysack Cup, and we didn't even get close to that. Rick Vive with us uh, on air here, Sportsnet uh, Radio. Um I'm interested in a couple of things here, Rick. When you were playing in the '80s, and the NHL was, you know, this very open game. You had, you were a goal scorer. I mean, the 50 goal seasons speak for themselves. When you see the game now, uh, how how do you think the game has evolved since you were playing, uh, you know, through the '80s and in the early '90s? Um, well, it's evolved a lot. I mean, obviously, it's a completely different game than it was in the '80s, and 
Um, I mean, there's, it's still a physical game, and, and knocking a guy off the puck to take possession is, is still part of the game. But these guys are now are, are trained. You know, they have skilled coaches, skating coaches, you name it, and, and they're they're pretty darn good. I mean, they're fast. They're they're great with their hands, and uh, you know, you look no further than what we have here in Toronto with uh, Matthews and Marner and guys like that. I mean, they're they're incredible hockey players. It's it's just a different game, and um, you know, it, it's a game that I think there's a lot of guys in the '80s that could have played in today's game. There's a lot of guys in the '80s that probably couldn't have played in today's game. So uh, these guys are very talented, but so were a lot of guys back in the '80s that probably could have played in any decade. And the other part of that discussion, and you have a couple of stories about it in the book, is you know there, there's such a difference now in terms of uh, really the help the players are getting, the staffs uh, that teams have, the doctors that are available for players, whether it's you know dealing with emotional and mental struggles dealing with uh, you know, general hockey injuries. Uh, what's the biggest difference or how much do you think that that would have helped you having that kind of structure that the hockey players have now? Oh boy. I, I think it would have been immense for me. I mean, uh, you know, I went a long time with uh, undiagnosed anxiety problems and unfortunately masked that with alcohol through many, many years. And, uh, you know, I think if it was today, and I got looked at and, and properly cared for. I mean, I, who knows what kind of numbers I probably I might have been able to put up. And that's not to say I would have, but I think being a little more healthy and, and uh, living a, a better lifestyle, I think obviously would have transcended onto the ice and made me a better player. Rick Vive, the author of his new book, Catch-22, joining us on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Uh, Rick, when I moved to Toronto in 2008, one of uh, one of the people I met that first summer was your son, Justin, who was uh, a hockey player at uh, University of Miami in Ohio at that point. And, uh, you know, he obviously had a great career uh, in college and then, you know, continued on playing for quite some time. I'm curious to know, as a father that had been through an NHL career like you did, and specifically when you look back and the reflections you made on this book, what do you think are the most... Or what are the things that, you know, young hockey players or even, you know, your son could have looked at and learned the most from? Well, he could have been a baseball player because he probably would have been a better baseball player. <laughs> I say that in fairness to him. He was an incredible baseball player, but he was a pretty good hockey player as well. And you know what? It's just, I, it's a real difficult job nowadays i mean he's still playing in the echl as a player assistant coach and he still loves playing but you know he never did get a chance to get to the national hockey league and now with players coming from all over the world you know uh i mean you better be good and you better work at your different skills that you're going to need to play in the national hockey league and then when you do get there you look in the room and every single guy on that hockey team was the best player on the team they played on and the best player probably all the way through minor hockey. So, you know, all of a sudden you're looking around going, Oh boy, I got to, you know, I got to make this team. And all these guys were the best players where they played too. So I would say that you have to set yourself apart from, from other people on the team in order to have a successful career. And uh, you know, whether that be, you might have to become a, a third line checking forward. You might have to be a 
third line uh, pairing defenseman instead of first or second, which you were your whole life. So you have to adapt, and I think that would be the, the best message is when you get to that, if you if you do get to that level, level, you might have to adjust and play a different role. And that's just the way it is now because all these guys are, are coming in and they're all real good. And they were all the best players all the way up when they played, just like you were. You write about hockey, Rick, being uh, an escape for you going back to your early childhood. And that's something that as you played in the NHL and had some of those ups and downs that, that you document in the book and that, that you've told us about a little bit here, um, your relationship with the game has evolved. But, I mean, clearly you, you still follow the game. I mean, your son is, is, a, is still active in the game. How would you describe your relationship with hockey? I would say pretty darn good, to be honest with you. I mean, it, it's one thing in my entire life that when I was on the ice, uh, whether it be by myself uh, on an outdoor rink or even be half an hour before a practice just shooting pucks or something, being on the ice and taking part in a game or a practice or something was, it was great for me. It was like, it was like a sanctuary for me being out doing those things that I love to do and you know, it's uh, and now, unfortunately, with the pandemic, we're not playing any alumni games and and uh, fundraising tournaments and that sort of thing. So it's kind of frustrating. But uh, I just I love the game. I love putting on the blades and getting on the ice and uh, going out and having having some fun. And that's that. I guess that's one of the things that my whole life, I, and even even in professional hockey, I tried to make it as fun as I possibly could. I mean, yeah, there were some lousy times when we played, you know, but sometimes just lightening the mood or something would help a little bit in a a practice or something too. So, uh, yeah, I I would have to say it's very special to me. And uh, even now, I I love watching the game. I love watching the the stars in the game today. They're incredibly talented. And, you know, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, in the near future and not in the distant future, we can win a Stanley Cup here in Toronto. Well, you certainly st- you certainly have the horses. <laughs> Whether or not they can <laughs> yeah. sort of put all the pieces together with the salary cap. Uh, former NHLer Rick Vive joining us on air. Where did the nickname Squid come from, Rick? Oh boy, that's a good one. Um, well, I was in, a, in Birmingham when I was nineteen with the Baby Bulls and uh, Birmingham Bulls, and John Brophy was our coach. So we were doing power play at one end, and everybody were doing some drills at the other. And it was our power play unit's turn to go down, and Brophy is standing at center right or at the blue line, the screaming at the top of his lungs, "Squid!" And Craig Hartsburg, who played with us that year, he's standing there, and he said, "Who are you calling?" And he said. Uh, why? He said, oh, you mean Spud. He says, well, I don't give a F what you call him. Squid, Spud, just get him down. <laughs> anyway, I got to Vancouver. No one called me Squid. It was just like kind of RV or whatever. And then I got traded at Toronto. We're playing Minnesota and stretching at the center red line or here. Craig comes over and says, hey, Squid, how's it going? And Dave Burroughs was standing beside me. <laughs> he looked, he went, Squid? And then that was it. It kind of stuck after that. And pretty much everybody that I've played with and anybody I know really well, I mean, they still call me Squid to this day. And Spud, I, I assume, was in reference to Prince Edward Island and sort of potatoes. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the spud and then until both did that, <laughs> then it became squid. Really quickly, Ricky, I mean, you you touch on it in the book and it's a theme throughout um, sort of the prevalence of alcohol within the NHL at that time. And it's something that you you talk about in the book that you struggled with. How prevalent was it? And do you think that it's still an issue within the NHL today? Uh, well, no, it, it was it was really prevalent in the 80s or late 70s and well actually probably in the 70s and 60s uh my brother-in-law my wife's brother played uh 10 years in the nhl bob stewart uh boston california cleveland and you know he started in the uh, early 70s and you know i i know talking to him it was very prevalent then and it was prevalent in the 80s i mean you go out for lunch and the whole team shows up. And if you didn't show up, uh, yeah, you could go and have one or two or whatever and leave and everybody would be okay with that. For me, it was tough because once I had that third, third one, it was like, okay, I'm there until I can't drink anymore or the bar shuts down. So, and today I don't think drinking is quite as prevalent as it was. I mean, I'm sure the players, you know, go out and have a good time when the time's right. Uh, and that was, that's the other part of it is that with us, it wasn't, you know, is this the right time to do it? It was just, it was done regardless of when it was. Now I know that they have sports science teams and everything else that teach the kids that, you know, yeah, you can do it on a one day. And, and if you're not playing for three, two or three days after that, otherwise it's going to affect uh, how you feel. And uh, so I, my guess is that, they got it down pretty good now. The book is Catch-22, My Battles in Hockey and Life. It's Rick's memoir uh, co-written by uh, Hockey Hall of Fame honored writer Scott Morrison. And it's uh, it's a very open book. Uh, It's got a lot of stories in it. So I encourage the audience to check it out. And uh, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk about it with us today, Rick. No, it's my pleasure, guys. I'm very proud. Proud of a lot of the things that I accomplished in the book, not just on the ice, but off the ice. And uh, I'm glad uh, to be on with you guys. I appreciate it.